Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. Thank you for joining us for what is episode 10 of the Digital Bulletin podcast. We've made it to double figures. Well done, everybody. Huddled inside the pod with me today are Digital Bulletin CEO, Romilly Broad. Hello. And Content Director, James Henderson. Hello. How are we, gentlemen? Rom, is life a little bit more normal now? Or are you still blinking at daylight and avoiding the outside world? Yes, the latter. Nothing's normal, is it? I don't think it's ever going to be normal again now. We just need to reconcile with our, ourselves with this. That's it. <laughs> James, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, I thought that as I as I worked at home, the more I did it, the easier it would get and the more I'd like it. And I'm sort of beginning to find the inverse is true. I'm missing, you know, normal stuff like human contact and a normal conversation. I'm not saying I don't have a normal conversation with my wife, but, you know, it is, <laughs> we've got an 11-month-old, so it's, you know, quite limited to, to babies most of the time. So I'm I'm hoping Rom is wrong when he says we will never go back to normal because um, I'd quite like it too now. Well, you, yeah, we know Rom is particularly worried about all this stuff. But I, I, hear, I hear you, Hendo. I hear you. Um, yeah. Definitely. Right. Listener, for you today, we are going to delve into the very interesting goings-on at Reliance Geo Platforms in India. We will also chat over our case study on KCOM and listen in to my interview with Greg Ostrowski, CTO for App Dynamics over in the US. But first, here's some news. Things are ramping up as we emerge from wave one of the coronavirus pandemic. There have been a heap of acquisitions in recent weeks. Microsoft moving for Orion Systems and CyberX. IBM making an RPA play by acquiring WDG Automation. And VMware swooping for Datrium and Blue Medora in the disaster recovery and IT monitoring worlds. Another story to make the headlines in recent weeks surrounds Palantir, the controversial big data firm, which has at last filed for its IPO. One to keep an eye on for sure. We've also seen confirmation that Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai and Tim Cook will all testify before Congress on the same day later this month. That will be theatre if ever I've seen it. Anyway, all part of the US antitrust inquiry, of course. Elsewhere, the University of California paid more than $1 million to hackers for stolen data. Wow. And NVIDIA and Mercedes have teamed up on software for autonomous cars. Lots of different stories there lots of different topics you can find a full roundup of the reporting on them and many many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com but now we're going to talk about reliance geo platforms if you don't know who they are where have you been for the last few months geo platforms runs indian telco geo which launched in 2016 but is already the country's biggest operator with 400 million subscribers This year, Geo Platforms has been on an extraordinary journey, raising more than $15 billion in the last 12 weeks alone from some of technology's biggest names, including Facebook. Now, this week, Qualcomm became the latest to get involved, committing a mere $97 million at the beginning of this week. That got them a 0.15% equity stake in Geo Platforms. That's what you get for your money these days. Um, James, simple question, really. First up, or you know, let's let's open this discussion up. Why are um, big tech companies and some of the biggest private equity firms making these bets? Do you think on on geo platforms? 
Yeah, I mean it's it's quite the list, isn't it? When you when you look at who who's sinking money and you've got the biggest tech companies in the world and then, you know, sovereign wealth funds from from the UAE and Saudi Arabia um, sinking their money in too. And it, it, I'll be honest, until a couple of months ago, I'd never heard of um, Reliance Geo or Geo platforms. Um, but th there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, number one, you know, Geo, despite only being established four years ago, is the market leader uh, in, a, in a growing and lucrative market, you know, being India. Um, and and it's 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 a company that's already making profits. It it, it was prof it will be profitable this year as well. Um, and there's also the you know the it, highly likely that in the next couple of years there's going to be a, a very very lucrative public listing as well, which they'll be able to share in. Um, so so it's twofold really. Um, yeah. the, 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 there's a number of reasons. There's 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 a number of reasons after that which I, I think we'll come to as well. But. Um, simply put, those are the those are the first reasons why you know a company like a Facebook or a wealth fund with money lying around would would, would pick Geo. Yeah, I've got a list here just to give some idea of the kind of scale of investment that's happened over the past few weeks. Facebook, five point seven billion dollars. Intel, two hundred and fifty three million dollars. Qualcomm, ninety seven million dollars. And then you look at the huge um, investment firms: General Atlantic, eight hundred and seventy million. Silver Lake, one point three billion. KKR 1.6 billion. And as you said there, James, um, sovereign funds from both Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia. Rom, let's chat about yeah. Facebook's interest here. What, what's Zuckerberg playing at, do you reckon, have taken a near 10% stake in Reliance Geo? Yeah, it's a, a whopping uh, investment by Facebook. It's what, definitely one of their largest, I think it's the second largest investment they've ever made in anything, really. Um, I was thinking about this this morning and there's a number of reasons, I think. And obviously, when if you're going to throw around billions of dollars, there's always going to be a variety of factors involved in that. Um, however, political considerations, I think, are probably up there. Um, one of the so one of, one of the things to realize is that WhatsApp is a bigger deal, I think, for Facebook in India than Facebook itself. There's 400 million users of WhatsApp, I believe, in, in one country. That's how big India is. Um, only a mere 300 million, I think, for Facebook. So it may be a WhatsApp play more than anything, mm -hmm. particularly since um, things flared up politically between India and China, um, because India has gone on to uh, bounce TikTok and ban TikTok out of India, I believe, uh, which obviously opens up the space um, competitively for Facebook. Now, if you sort of say, well, WhatsApp's the main thing here, you just look, need to look at... Um, geo platforms um ambitions in the commercial space in the financial payment space whatsapp i reckon in facebook's view is the vehicle for all of that sort of stuff bearing in mind that the parent company of um, geo platforms is reliance industries um which is absolutely massive they make everything they they own retail they make plastics they do everything um, if you were going to say, well, let's make WhatsApp a marketplace, then you would tack it onto uh, Reliance Industries. <laughs> like that just makes perfect sense. The other political element to this, of course, is the pressure that Facebook's under elsewhere, I think, which is that the, the Facebook brand is becoming increasingly tarnished and under increasing regulatory pressure at home um, and in Europe, meaning it's naturally inclined to look towards uh, markets like 
uh, India, especially where it can't really get anywhere in China because of you know lots of reasons. And so, I think it all it all it all adds up. And I think honestly, coronavirus has probably played a part in this as well. Um, anybody wanting to throw around billions of dollars right now is looking for safe bets, and this is about as safe as it gets. Um, so while they've been, you know, if you're a startup, you're kind of out of luck right now because everyone's, you know, um, withdrawing their their risks at, at the moment. But this isn't really a risk as, as far as any of these folks are concerned, particularly Facebook. No, the WhatsApp point is a really um, pertinent one, I think, as well, Ron, because how Geo has, has had its success is by delivering 4G to so many people so quickly. And you can completely understand, you know, these are people who have previously had zero connectivity in India. Um, and you can understand why Facebook are wanting to sort of get even more involved um, in that because of the scale of it. Um, James Rom sort of touched on it there, but even though Geo Platforms and and, and Geo the the telco are, are relatively new companies, Reliance Industries are not and have really been no. a dom dominant force in India's private sector for many years and um, have India's richest man at the helm. Do you want to give us a bit more of the backstory there? Yeah, so I think that what a, a really neat way to to sort of illustrate how these are all linked is that um, Geo um, is the dominant sort of provider of um, of networking and and data. Now it's only four years old, but when it was launched in twenty sixteen, um, the the comp you know the wider company took um, a load of its money that it made from oil and used that to dramatically slash the 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 cost and the, and the price of the consumer of data packages on their mobile phones. Um, and that did two things. It, 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 you know, forced a couple of companies out of, out of the sector, but it also resulted in a sort of cultural shift in India uh, where before things like video calling and streaming had, had been sort of out of reach for, for many of the, you know, many of the population, but actually it made it affordable for, for, you know, vast, um, vast num numbers of people which which hadn't done it before so that shows that as rom sort of said this is a company that's uh, into media news oil film sport retail i mean it has its arms around everything it's the biggest company in india and uh, what mukesh ambani is, is trying to do here is develop a, a sort of homegrown tech giant to take on amazon because amazon has you know it's it's looked at india india is one of the more is one of the fastest growing economies in the world of course and and amazon you know is everywhere where where people are and where and where money is so amazon is you know over the last couple of years really looked to get into into india and 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 what what he's trying to do is you know is develop a a, a technology giant to take that company on um, so it's, I mean, just, just a quick overview that the wider company has got, you know, 200,000 employees got assets of 140 billion. So yeah, while, while geo is, is a new company, the, the company that, um, that owns it is not, it is part of the fabric of India. And if you, if you live there, it, you know, your daily life will be touched by, you know, by one part of it at the very least. It's clear that they, they, I think, I think, um, he said that he wants to sort of control of digital India and to really have a, the biggest slice of that pie. Um, Ron, when we consider these investments, obviously we've looked at it from the point of view of the investors. So companies like Facebook and what they're getting, is there also, do we have to look at it from the point of reliance? And, and obviously they've given up nearly 25% of, of the company in this instance. And they, they obviously want the expertise of all these various tech companies and investment companies to ensure that this kind of 
nascent digital environment in India at the moment is going to become like a, a, a world-class kind of digital infrastructure. They're looking for that in, in um, expertise as well as money, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, obviously they're looking for pace. So they want loads of cash, um, and which they now have. And that's going to be able to fund um, vast amounts of growth really quickly. But that cash is coming from, in some cases, um, people who can contribute a lot more than that. Um, I think India is obviously a fascinating place. I mean, we can look at our own stats and understand that India is important to us even on on our little level. India is the third uh, most uh, important country for us in terms of, you know, people coming to look at our content and our website and everything after the United States and and Europe. Um, You look at the, the, you know, for for decades now, India has been uh, ahead of the curve in terms of being able to offer technology services and um, uh, companies all over the world tend to outsource those things and have done increasingly over the last few decades. That what India has got is a really rich uh, academic and industrial background in technology. What it's now got is a population that's being able to access and and use it as well. Um, in, I think an interesting angle on this is is the way that obviously. India's top talent tends to export itself, particularly to the United States. And, um, uh, you know, a a lot of uh, top executive positions in technology companies in the States are, you know, populated by people originally from India. It's kind of interesting that that's kind of flowing back now, at least beginning with the money. And then, um, yeah, so I I think, you know, I'll go back to the political point as well, which is that everyone from a technology perspective in terms of trying to figure out where to put their money has um, had the China question, which is that, you know, most of the products that the big technology companies in America produce are manufactured in China. Um, And yet at the same time, the services that are delivered via those devices um, uh, are trying to get access to China, but can't because there's, you know, it's just an incredibly difficult place to do business. Now that that political kind of uh, balancing act has, has flipped a little bit, um, everyone's focusing on India because it's such a vast place with so many people. As 5G explodes across the nation, and presumably um, Geo Platforms is going to have a big role to play in that, um, everyone's thinking this is where um, this is where the 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 real um, the, the revolution begins, if you like, in terms of in terms of exploiting 5G and what that means. James, we also, I mean, Silicon Valley is, is taking a huge interest in India, as, as we've established. Google as well, just, just this week, has said it's going to commit $10 billion to a range of initiatives a- across the country as well. Um, this is a real trend, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it speaks into what Ron was speaking about there in that there is a lot of uncertainty around China and, um, and you know, do companies want to be investing there at the moment? And if they do invest there, will they be allowed to invest in the United States? And you know, even Europe, where where you know, certainly the UK at the moment is expected in the next couple of you know weeks to to announce that Huawei is going to be sort of ripped out of its five G five um, G network. So if you're looking for somewhere else to in, invest your money, and and if you want to invest it somewhere where it's one, as we said earlier, one of the world's fastest growing economies that has always sort of embraced tech and and all the all the stuff that goes with that. Then then India India is definitely a place to do it, and we we see that with, with Geo. I think these these companies that have put their their money into it, these are companies that they expect returns on their investments. And at the moment, Geo is that place, and more widely, I think over the next couple of years, in India will be that place too. 
yeah it's it's all really interesting stuff right we need to head off in a different direction although we will be staying in telecoms on a much smaller level time to chat all things kcom after this find us as digital bulletin on linkedin facebook and instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on twitter this month's case study, Focus, sees us reflect on our recent work with KCOM. Now, KCOM is a telecoms company here in the UK, serving the citizens and businesses of Hull and East Yorkshire. We were lucky enough to get some time with one of its technology leaders, Tim Shaw, who told us all about the work KCOM has done over the last year to perfect its customer journeys. Before we get stuck in to the transformation story, let's hear from Tim on the three main areas of importance that motivated KCOM to change. If you think around telecoms in general, we've got to move away from complex products. You know, customers are always demanding more, quicker, with less interaction, smoother, you know, less friction. Because of our history, some of our systems and our processes just were not customer friendly, is the way I'd put it. And it's the first thing I noticed when joining. That was that was the big change we had to make. The second one is really starting to show how digital first become thinking in that way becomes absolutely critical voice is still important customers love to talk to people but there's also a large proportion of customers that want that digital experience they're very much used to that in how they work elsewhere so we need to be able to move with that way and the last one is really around service being able to always be on and have up-to-date records and be able to react to issues that have gone wrong becomes really critical uh, Ron, before we get into the nitty gritty, KCOM are quite well known for being different here in the UK, aren't they? Do you want to tell us why? Yeah, they've got an interesting history and it's wrapped up with the history of telecoms across the United Kingdom. Um, the, I mean, the telecoms infrastructure of the UK, it was born out of, you know, government funded, nationalised kind of uh, stuff back in the Victorian times where people started initially along rail railways, they you know were laying cables to transmit Morse code and all that. And that evolved into what is a national infrastructure. Most countries started, uh, you know, all of that stuff in the same way. Ultimately, that was privatized into what is now known as BT, apart from one little corner of the United Kingdom, which is up in the Northeast. That um, is uh, now called KCOM. It's rebranded a few times. But um, should I give you a little anecdotal story? My first ever job while I was still in college was uh, as a directory inquiries operator, right? And that's where before the internet and stuff, people could phone up and ask for the phone number of like a shop or whatever near them. It was like, you know, mo the yellow pages over the phone. And anybody who called me from, uh, you know, a, a particular part of the Northeast, um, I just had to say, sorry, no, can't do. Because there was this one little black spot <laughs> uh, in in the entire thing because bt uh, itself did not have any say at all in this region and so actually for over 100 years kcom has been sat there focused very hard on a relatively uh, small population of people which has enabled it over all of those years to develop quite a, a very close attachment to its customers but also um to to develop service for those customers that actually is is um second to none in the in the uk and and i think what this what was interesting to find out um in talking to tim was 
okay, how do they maintain that momentum? How do they grow beyond that? How do they do better for their customers? And obviously he had a, a lot to say about that. Yeah, I think they were, um, I think the broadband they rolled out um, last year or the year before was the one of the fastest in the world, actually, certainly the fastest in the UK. Mm. So it's interesting to see how a small um, company, a small telecoms company with a very kind of clear focus on, on who it's serving um and it's interesting to see how you know what they're able to do with that um james tim talked there in that clip about you know the digital first customer mm. journey this is very familiar to us isn't it we hear so much about making things very simple for customers and and companies adapting quite drastically to fit their needs and while in this you know as we said there the broadband now on offer to people and businesses in in hull is exceptional this story is really about the the kind of the underlying infrastructure that is able to deliver that to customers in the easiest way. And this digital first thing is a common theme for us, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. I think most, if not all, the, the case studies we've, we've done, they, they speak about the importance of digital first and, and how customers increasingly expect it. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I certainly do. I don't want to be sat on a on a phone waiting for, for hours on end, the first thing I will always do is look, there's a live chat option, for example, you know, something like that. Um, uh, and, and I think he mentioned there, you know, customers don't want any friction. They don't, they don't necessarily want to, to, to have to interact over, over voice. Obviously voice still has a place, but it's almost, I think, become sort of the last resort. Um, whereas it, obviously it used to be your first option, you know, you'd look for the number and you'd, you look to get through to someone, but there's absolutely no reason with with the technology that we have that we need to be paying bills, you know, over the phone or or going into a, a bank to to you know check our check our you know these things just aren't necessary anymore. Um, and but I think the the point he made was 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 very important that um, companies are having to move quickly, and and obviously this digital first experience has been expedited um, by the COVID-19 crisis. You know, we physically can't get to places to to go and interact. So I think that that weirdly enough, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has acted as a a real catalyst to to speed up some of the digital first thinking for companies who perhaps hadn't got there yet. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. Um, KCOM launched their sort of new product in january this year so they timed that perfectly yeah in regards to the pandemic rom um actually kcom could probably you know find reasons really not to innovate couldn't they because they have kind of a monopoly i mean they don't call it a monopoly i think they technically call it a significant market share but, you know, it, is, it is a monopoly but actually it's quite is it's quite admirable for them to sort of be investing and, and and trying to deliver that best customer experience even though you know they kind of have their customers there and those customers aren't going to be going anywhere anytime soon yeah absolutely and so um i think tim was quite honest about that as well is that you what you organizations that are very large or have essentially localized monopolies you can look at a you know utility obviously utility companies that sort of thing um we spent a lot of time with thames water for example where actually they're confronting a similar sort of challenge which is that actually if you're not pressured if through competition to innovate and improve then why why should you and so tim was quite honest about that i think what you end up doing is building up quite a lot of um, baggage, a lot of legacy, not just from a technical point of view, but from a people perspective as well. And um, what is uh, refreshing about KCOM, because obviously we, we're talking about KCOM as being a, a regionalized local player, almost as if they're locked into that area, which 
in terms of physical infrastructure is true, but obviously KCOM are are bigger than that through, yeah. you know, they're able to offer various services um, na nationally and they're growing in that, obviously. But um, when when they say digital first, they're talking about um, how do we make sure that we don't, um, that we are constantly challenging a, a, our culture and our assumptions uh, to make sure that inertia doesn't set in and that they are innovating on behalf of their customers. And, you know, the first thing to do to achieve that is to be honest about it, which I think, you yeah. know, I think clearly was, uh, and then to take proactive steps to to challenge it. And it's it's a multifaceted and complicated process, but they've obviously made strides in, in that. Yeah. Culture is something we'll touch on again in a minute, but this is really a story about speed of change. KCON worked very closely with Velocity to deliver a new, listen to this, customer ordering and proposition management solution. What this basically means is that Velocity holds KCOM's product catalog and has helped streamline processes around order management and, and creating that digital first experience that we um, that we spoke of there. And this, this platform-led approach, they call it, has allowed KCOM to release its minimum viable product within just five months. So, And, and another major benefit of this method has also been the ability for KCOM to train non-specialists on the platform. So taking it out of the hands of technology specialists and and including kind of commercial teams and and allowing them to have control over it. And that's something Tim Shaw explains more in this clip. That has given certainly for us a real boost in productivity. I think where we can now put our coders is more on that digital experience right at the front end where we can add the real difference. And actually when we get to the product journeys, this is around configuring the best experience. And I think this idea of small changes should be done by the business teams and it's the the medium to large scale changes should be done by the technology team is something i'm really keen to do why do i think that's critical the business is forever changing whether that's a new product new pricing a new feature actually if that's something they can do in the moment and it gets checked and tested and can be released the next day why wouldn't we do that that's the the direction we're starting to really think about how we take certainly the velocity platform so rom when we talk about the customer journey it's, it's it's really not just about the customers it's about the employees as well isn't it as tim said there it's about simplifying things for kcom's people to, to enable them to deliver um services quicker yeah absolutely i mean if you want to if your end goal is to simplify things for your customers then simplifying things for your employees is probably the first thing you should do right because yeah. how do you do that otherwise um i mean that's that you know that's I don't want to say agile, but whenever you say agile, you end up in a uh, in a really long conversation with people. But fundamentally, that's what they're delivering here with Velocity's help, which is, um, you know, the, the ability to um, use platforms like those provided by Velocity to enable them to conceptualize and roll out new products way, way quicker. Now, if they're trying to do that on, on the back of, you know, a decade or more of uh, entrenched practices and processes and technologies, that's always going to take an achingly long time. And these days, you can't hang about that long. KCOM's position is one that isn't assured forever. Just because they have a kind of monopoly doesn't mean that that can't be taken away. Now, if they fall behind an increasingly rapid set of competitors, then obviously that will change. So they have to keep up existentially. But they don't just want to keep up, and that's the point. They need to be ahead because that's where their future ambitions lie. Uh, platforms like those provided by Velocity enable them uh, to do that, for sure. Yeah. 
Tim certainly didn't hide from the sort of cultural challenges that he experienced along this process. One of my favorite stories from from the interview was when he was he was telling me about how um, when the platform was first released and he was basically saying to the people who had, who had worked on previous systems for many years to, to, to use this new system. And they pretty much immediately said, can we go back to the old system <laughs> straight away? But within, within a few weeks um, that had very quickly changed. James, when, when business systems were overhauled so quickly, you can certainly see why leaders talk so much about people change, can't you? Because it really is about that. We hear it a lot, but it really is. Yeah, I mean, I I, I'm, I almost bore myself uh, by, you know, with this point that I always make, seem to make it on every single one of these podcasts, but these the people that are as important, if not more important than the actual technology, because without getting your employees on board and, and getting them comfortable and happy with the systems that they're using, then you're just not going to get the best results out of them. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be not if not money down the drain certainly money not well spent and so it's about i think that the culture change is really important it's about you know educating staff on how it's going to make their you know their jobs easier or or more rewarding perhaps um and i, I think that what tim spoke about there really speaks to some of the wider trends that we're seeing in, in technology at the moment like two of the the big trends really that you'd say we've seen in 2020 so far, one would be sort of no or low code, and the other one would sort of be sort of multi-experience development platforms. And that's about really enabling the business sides of, of enterprise to make those day-to-day changes um, that, you know, that, that, that customers expect now and that, that customers need. And they don't actually need to be in a queue with, with technology teams. And actually the tech teams are allowed to work on, on you know, longer term projects. Um, bigger to bigger projects, but you know these these technologies out there are certainly growing. Where whereby they allow um, citizen developers, if you like, you know people who are not who don't have you know doctorates in code to make these these simple but actually really important changes. Yeah, and that's that's one of the main benefits that KCOM has has found from the from its partnership with Velocity is is really Velocity aren't having to do much now because. KCOM staff have been quickly trained on the platform and, and, and it's up and running. I think, yeah, just to wrap up here, I mean, I, I was on this project and I, I found it a kind of really impressive story because Tim only joined KCOM in June last year. So it's been there just over a year. And these are pretty major changes that happened. And obviously with the MVP launching in January, you can you can sort of see the, the quick turnaround. But, you know, KCOM has already seen a sort of reduced customer fallout and, and faster fulfillment cycles on its customer journeys. So they're really reaping the benefits of it. Um, yeah, Roman, do you want to add something there? Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I just thought, I, just to come back to that, um, the, the people-centric um, component of, of technology change. And I just, I guess I wanted to just direct people to to our output because we've talked to so many um, quite inspirational leaders who are technologists but are primarily focused on delivering um, actual results through technology. And you, I would say, you know, they spend probably 80% of their time um, working on the people, not the technology. You can d- implement as many shiny tools as you like. If if the response of your people is, nope, um, then you're not going to get very far. And so it's about leadership in that context. I would point you towards uh, the interview that we did with the CIO of the city of Atlanta, who talks a lot about that. Um, given the challenges that they've had over there, not just the, the coronavirus situation, but um, two years ago, a catastrophic ransomware attack 
that meant they had to institute vast sweeping amounts of change throughout the you know the technology team at, in the city and um sure there was technology involved but it wasn't that it was about taking a whole group of people used to doing certain things in certain ways using certain tools and certain processes and getting them to change and that's the hard bit um you can find all sorts of examples of that um across um our output and what it's quite inspiring when you when you look at someone as new into the role as Tim and the change that he's managed to bring about, um, and you know, I I know that we're going to be telling more stories like that over the next few weeks uh, as well. But just to stress, the technology is always the uh, you know the the starting point, but it's never the majority of the exercise. Yeah, we say we cover technology, but we more often than not don't really do it it's about <laughs> and it's not just it's not just the the workers the people who are using the technology it's also the you look upwards the the boards of directors and the real decision makers who ne not necessarily are te aren't technologists but um the, the people who really have to buy into this stuff and 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 tim spoke about that and how, how they had to kind of brand this change as a business transformation rather than kind of focusing it too much on on technology um okay great stuff guys we're going to move on but the kcom case study is available to read or watch or listen to however you want to consume it in full over on digitalbulletin.com it's time for us to take another quick break we'll be back after this power up your day with the bulletin brief the latest news insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox It goes without saying that working in IT is very different today to how it was even a few years ago. No longer the silently efficient back office function of old, IT is playing a central role for business as technology and data come to the fore. As a CTO for AppDynamics, a software company in the IT operations space, Greg Ostrowski knows all about this dramatic shift. And in this month's interview, he shares his thoughts on the empowerments of IT and how businesses as a whole can support their ever important technology teams. But I started off our chat with a very simple question. Just why has pressure ramped up so much on IT departments over recent years? Yeah. So Ben, so when you, when you look at why pressure is increased on IT departments, you look at it from two factors. One is you look at how applications have be become so important to our lives on a daily basis. You just take it like from a personal level. This is very, you know, everybody's got different scenarios, but they're all about the same, right? So from a, from an application perspective and the way, you know, I, my personal use of applications, I, I have a, a banking application that I log into multiple times a day. You know, it's not like I, I need to, it's just because I can, right? So it's, you, you have this ex expectation that your, your, your banking application is always going to be there. Same thing with traveling, right? You know, how many folks have moved from using traditional taxis to rideshare applications or even the way you drive your cars, right? I have, uh, have an Android device. I use Android Auto in my car. I have my music, I have my GPS. Some folks use Apple AirPlay. So now you have this ecosystem right in your pocket that you bring right into your car. And then lastly, I mean, retail, I mean, retail has been completely transformed over the last couple of years that, you know, your online bank, your online purchases have become, you know, so easy and flexible to do. And then now I started using something where I get, you know, home delivery to my house. And I, I started this because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think I'm going to keep using it because it's so convenient. So you have these applications that are running that are so elegant to use, easy to use. I pick it up and I'm automatically an expert because it's so simple. And it's responsive and the, the demands that the consumers have on these applications require a very fast responsive application that gets the results they need. 
Now, what, what got us to the, to the areas of where IT is, has been under such demand is if you look at the way technology has evolved, especially over the last decade in particular, you know, 10 plus years ago, we had a very simple structure. We had a data center that had an application, a server, and that was about it. Very easy to troubleshoot. But now things started to expand and folks started to implement cloud services. They started to put microservices in place of, of uh, you know, small tasks that they want to perform on a, on a very quick, responsive basis. And it just started to explode from there. So, you know, cloud got you the ability to release new features at a much faster pace, but it also allows you to scale on consumer demand. So now you go from having this, you know, very simple data center to now a, a very complex mix of technology that has uh, many different interdependencies, uh, all pieces connected together. And one particular service can take out a slew of applications. So when you're the IT guy and you're trying to figure out what's the problem when my users are complaining that there's a slowdown or there's an outage in my application, finding that needle in the haystack of where the problem is has become tremendously more difficult for the IT person. And then on the flip side, you got the business leader saying, hey, what's going on here? Why am I paying this money to invest in technology, but I'm not getting the business results? So you can see this, you know, the evolution has kind of created the complexity that, that put more challenges on the IT professional. We know that you guys at AppDynamics work very closely with IT teams. Do you want to, have you got any kind of good stories or examples that reflect that, that kind of pressure that they're operating under now? And just maybe give us a bit of insight into what, what it's really like now to be part of these IT teams. Yeah, you know, so it, it's kind of funny too, because you see an evolution in the way IT is operating. And you've seen that historically in the past. You know, folks went from, you know, uh, a waterfall development methodology to agile. So it's change is always, is always pretty consistent in, in IT. But now we're seeing companies that are really starting to bridge the gap between business and IT. And that's where the leaders on both sides of the fence, both the business leaders and the IT leaders need to, need to bridge that gap in a, in a better way so that they understand what the dependencies each, each other has off of, off of uh, one another. So when you start looking at it from that point of view and you start thinking about you know, what some companies have done, um, one of the pieces here is the, the, the role of the site reliability engineer, right? That's a, that's a uh, it started out 10 years ago, but now it's starting to pick up. And that's a, that's a person or a group of, a team of people that support the whole full stack of the application that understands not just the technology, but they understand the business risks and the business challenges that you have in play. So putting this staff in place, and I started seeing that grow over the last two years from, I think it was about 10% uh, of, the, of the organization started to, to roll out the role of the SRE. Now we're about 15%, even though it's not, you know, 5% is not a big jump. Keep in mind, this started 10 years ago. So the last couple of years have, have really started to see the need of having people that understand the full stack as well as, as um, you know, the business metrics. And that's, you know, that's where AppDynamics comes in. We, we provide that full stack visibility and then our business IQ platform gives you those that, um, insights of how the business is actually performing so the two teams can collaborate and work together. You know, and if you look at some of our customer examples, you take a, take a company like Carhartt traditionally a, uh, a wholesale company. They, they used to sell their products wholesale to retailers. They got into the retail game and they wanted to understand how they can tie their business and IT together. And by leveraging AppDynamics and BizIQ, they were able to have those real-time insights to see what's going on from both IT and business perspectives so that when the big seasonal type events happen, like you know, Black Friday or Cyber Monday or different events that happen, they're able to see what's going on and course correct in real time so that the business doesn't dip based on technology. 
Mm-hmm. So you see, you see a lot of these things happening and a lot of transitions happening from uh, uh, not just technology, but also the internal culture to embrace those two teams working together. Yeah. That intersection between business and IT is something we hear about a lot. Greg, this is, this is a positive thing for IT, isn't it? This is, this is the empowerment of IT um, methodologies and people, isn't it? And for the, for the greater good of the business. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, uh, the technology folks really have the opportunity to drive business because, you know, ultimately at the end, the application has become the business. So when you look at it from that point of view, it's, it's as if it's like your, your front door of your office or your front door of your store is your application. So that's your, that's your experience of what somebody's going to base their uh, relationship with your, with your company. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's talk about the, the topic that everyone talks talking about at the moment, Greg, the, the pandemic. And I believe AppDynamics, AppDynamics has done some research around, around digital strategy and how, how the pandemic has exposed some gaps in digital strategy. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. So, so we, um, we started a, uh, a, an effort called Agents of Transformation back in 2018. And that was really to find out who had the right culture, the right tools, and the right mentality to be able to drive transformation inside of your organization. Back then, we found about 9% of the, of the technologists had what they needed to be able to, to drive change. So you roll the clock forward, we ran another report for the COVID-19 pandemic to, to kind of get a little, you know, test the uh, environment and see what technologists are dealing with now. And we're finding out that 61% have more pressure than they've ever had before. So you think about that, that's because they have people that now automatically went to home office, yet they still have to keep the business running at the same time. And when you look at how uh, things have changed, they've changed their priorities. 95% changed their technology uh, priorities. The user experience is the most important thing that they have here. And one of the things I think is coming out as a positive of the COVID-19 pandemic is that IT departments are now being able to drive their innovation or their technology uh, transformation projects in a much faster pace. So things that were were typically taking a, a, a year or more to get approved 74% 74% are saying that their, their projects are getting approved in weeks rather than, than years. Mm-hmm. And at that same token, the implementation, 71% are saying they're implementing their projects faster than they've had before you know, within weeks versus years. So that, to me, I think is a, is a cultural shift that's happening. I think the business is going to see a, a strong value to that, and I don't necessarily see that changing. Maybe it'll peel back a little bit, but it's, you know, you're, the need of, of driving the business forward is, is something that I think is a, is a positive coming out of COVID-19. Does that mean, however, that the, the pressure on IT teams is going to increase even more as we go forward now? Well, you know, you look at it as pressure, or you look at it as opportunity. Yeah. Right? You know, 10 years ago, we had the consumerization of IT where the business lost faith in our IT, IT leadership or IT direction. Now the pendulum has shifted our way and, and IT professionals see such a tremendous opportunity to be able to drive the business in a positive manner going forward. Yeah. As, as Greg, as environments and infrastructure become, become bigger and, and more complex, what role do you think software and, and artificial intelligence, for example, have to play in, in this piece? Because, you know, whether it's monitoring or whether it's testing, there are so many areas where technology can support the technology, as it were. Yeah, yeah. You know, so AI and software is the future. It's, it's the, way, the way we're starting to evolve. Like I, like I said before, we have complex architecture. You have, you know, on-premise data centers, you have databases, you have servers, you have networks, you have infrastructure, you have cloud environments, microservices, containers, what have you. You have this very complex piece. And when you start to analyze and you start to monitor, 
you have a lot of metrics coming in, a lot of events, a lot of topology maps, all these things coming through different disparate monitoring systems. Well, it's gotten to the point where it's too difficult for somebody to be able to manage that from a, a human element. So what AI is going to give you the ability to do is to be able to ingest all that content, all, the, all those events and, and metrics and what have you, and provide insights, analytical insights that give you real-time data to make your decisions moving forward. And the second piece of that is around building in automation. So as you start to uh, understand where the problems are and quickly resolve root cause analysis based on an AI engine, you can then also start to trigger some automation to resolve some things on a, on a, on a real-time basis so that one, it doesn't affect the user experience, and two, it allows your IT teams to free up some of their resources to become more innovative versus putting out fire, uh, you know, firefighting. So that way, you know, you kind of see how AI is, is, a, is a fundamental tool moving forward. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's around, you know, embracing that. You know, when I talked about this a couple of years ago, a lot of folks kind of dipped their toe in the water. They were a little hesitant about automating some of their things that they've done manually for so many years. But now it's gotten to the point where it's a strategic initiative and it's a, it's a change that they must do to stay relevant. Yeah, what's, what's adoption like from your, from your experience, Greg, especially with the more sophisticated kind of technologies? Where, where are we at, do you think, right now? I think we're, I think we're uh, in a very good position. We have, um, you know, the, the, the maturity of big data and the maturity of cloud technologies have enabled us to build, you know, execute on our central nervous system strategy where we, we can start to, you know, ingest all those different components and, and start to, uh, you know, become a, a bigger play in the, the overall uh, industry beyond APN. APM is a starting point. A lot of folks have been moving in the path of implementing APM for that full stack visibility. But when you start looking moving forward, you know, I think, I think you're going to see a rapid adoption over the next, next couple of years of AI in that automation uh, cycle so that you can build these autonomous environments that allow IT teams to free up and start to um, drive the right sections of technology versus just you know, getting in the weeds and trying to troubleshoot. Yeah. Just, just to wrap up then, Greg, looking to the future, we know IT teams are going to have a lot more on their hands. We know there's going to be software and AI to, to support them. What, what do you think the future, future looks like in terms of that support? Is it going to be a blend of, of technology support? And obviously, as you said at the very beginning of the interview, businesses giving IT the space and the authority to make decisions and, and do things their way. Yeah, so it's definitely a cultural shift as well, right? So you have uh, your, your business teams need to understand what the objectives are, set clear objectives, both from a technology point of view and, and from, a, from a business point of view. And that, that's where you have that interlock between the two, two groups so that you both understand what each other needs. And when you think about that moving forward, you have to allow the IT teams to start to experiment take a little bit of risk, put new features out there, but have the right data and the right insights so that you can course correct in a meaningful way uh, in the event something goes in the wrong direction. And that way you have this blameless environment so that people are not pointing fingers and you know, we have your typical issues of IT silos and business silos where something goes wrong and everybody goes to prove that they're innocent. You gotta get out of that mentality. It's not a matter of who did something wrong. Everybody knows failure is going to happen. There's going to be problems. A, embrace that and start to move forward, drive the business. And everybody has those clear objectives so that you know what the end game is, what the goal is, what you got to hit. Yeah. That, that old fashioned kind of view of an IT person as a, as a or IT department as a back office function, Greg, that, that's a thing of the past now, isn't it? It's, it's a really exciting time to be working in, in IT. Yeah, I agree. And I tell you, if, if uh, an organization is still living in the past and doesn't want to shift, 
that's the ones you got to be worried about. I, I think the ones who are embracing the technology and driving their business forward, culturally changing, putting IT as part of the business strategy, those are the ones you're going to see that survive through the pandemic and rise through the pandemic so that they you know, come out stronger than they were before. So there's a lot of opportunity. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on episode 10 of the Digital Bulletin podcast. We're not going to let you go, however, without some shameless plugs. Issue 18 of the Digital Bulletin magazine, put together so expertly by James, is out now. Lots of great stuff to dive into there. And don't forget Tech for Good, our brand new platform focused on technology's power to deliver positive change. Thank you as ever to the panel, James Henderson. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Romilly, thank you very much as ever. No problem. Thank you. And we look forward to welcoming you again soon, listener. Bye-bye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation. 